Greetings from the far side of the wormhole nexus, and welcome to The Vorecast, a podcast about Lois McMaster Bujold's Vorkosigan saga. My name is Daniel Galsworth, and I would like to welcome you all back to episode 5, where we'll begin going through the second story in the internal chronology of the Vorkosigan saga, Falling Free. This is a really special episode for me, because, possibly like many of you, I had thought Falling Free was the first part in the Vorkosigan saga. Because of this, when I was first thinking about preparing to do this podcast, it was this book I had in mind. It was a lot of, oh, I can't wait to talk about this part, and I wonder if anyone else has ever made that connection. And now I get to do it, so hooray. And, possibly like many of you, Falling Free was the first book I read in the Vorkosigan saga, so it gave me my first impression of Lois's writing. I can't wait until we come across some of the moments when I first started to pick up that there was something special about Lois. First, I'd like to talk about all the supplemental material that I'm using for the show. In the second episode, I said that I was going to try to read the supplemental essays in both the Dreamweaver's Dilemma Collection and the Vorkosikin Companion as needed in order to not spoil my real-time reactions to new information. I also stated that this idea might be misguided, and it turns out that it was. I am not a Vorkosigan or Lois McMaster Bujold expert, and I thought it would be fun to learn along with you guys. But really, I'm just missing opportunities to pass along information. With that in mind, the new direction I'm going is that I will give greater priority to reading the supplemental materials so that I can have that information available when we touch on the related events in the story. I am setting a goal to have consumed all the readily available material over the course of the next two months. I have already started this effort, and I have already struck Supplemental Gold. This comes in the form of the preface for the Dreamweaver's Dilemma Collection, written by Lois's lifelong friend, Lillian Stewart Carl. The preface is entitled, Through Darkest Adolescence with Lois McMaster Bujold, or Thank You, But I Already Have a Life. I had already read a little about Lillian and Lois's relationship from Lois's biologue on Dari.com so I was intrigued by the prospect of hearing the story from the other side. However, I have an irrational bias against forwards and prefaces, I'm sorry to admit, and I usually skip them. I unfairly projected the shame of my crimes upon the victim and did not give any thought to the potential pleasure I would get from reading Lillian's writing, but instead began reading Through Darkest Adolescence with the stoic dignity of using a smelly elevator. However, Lillian Stewart Carl is an amazing writer and is not only talented as hell, but hilarious. I was laughing out loud by the third sentence. Quote, At first I was in awe of Lois. She had attained little girl apotheosis. She owned a pony. End quote. Throughout the preface, Lillian tells the story of growing up, quote, isolated in dweebliness, end quote, with Lois. Although I will point out the fact that they were at least isolated together, if those two words are allowed to be next to each other. With ease, Lillian opens windows into some of the most charming and wholesome scenes of friendship I've ever read. She touched on so many of the same ideas I was trying to convey in this podcast first episode when I was talking about nerd culture before the internet. What Lillian described was an even bleaker landscape than what I experienced, and multiply that by being some of the very few women in that community. One way she did this was with a refrain she used in the form of fans to us when describing what the typical girls her age were into. She does this twice to emphasize the changing times, and I was sure she was going to go for a third in keeping with the rule of threes, but she didn't, and has created within me an unresolved sense of dissatisfaction 
that I will always bear. In Lillian and Lois's childhood, quote, fans to us were girls who read movie magazines and who were gaga over Dr. Kildare and little Joe Cartwright, end quote. And as teenagers, quote, fans to us were girls screaming at Beatles concerts or men shouting at a football game, end quote. There is so much more to talk about in this fantastic little work of auto-slash-biography, but I think I will just share this little section where Lillian talks about some of their creative influences as girls. Quote, Lois subscribed so faithfully to Analog, her mother began to hold each new issue hostage until she cleaned her room. She read, and passed on to me, Poe Anderson, A.E. Van Vaught, Zena Henderson, James Smith, Cordwainer Smith, Ray Bradbury, and Robert Heinlein. We thought Stranger in a Strange Land was gigglingly racy. Conan Doyle and C.S. Forrester we discover together. And Tolkien's Lord of the Rings remains to this day one of our all-time favorite books. We went to the movies, from Lilies of the Field to Battle of the Bulge, from Wild in the Streets, anyone remember that? To Goldfinger to Lawrence of Arabia the latter implanting the image of the brooding hero permanently in our literary vocabularies. We built spaceships for our Barbie dolls. We wrote bits and pieces of poetry, fractions of stories, assuring ourselves that this was practice for later on, although just what later on was going to be, we were never able to articulate. End quote. Just charming. I'll admit I had to look up some of those authors' names. I love that she mentioned Stranger in a Strange Land. When I read it, I did find the sex parts of the story a little unexpected, but what I really took away from the book was the word discorporate. To this day, if I've had a rough day and somebody asks how I'm doing, I'll reply that I was very tempted to discorporate today, after which I will usually wait in vain to see if they get the reference. And this little scene of them writing feverishly with their hyperactive childhood imaginations, oh, so precious. And now, we'll travel approximately 300 years beyond the events of the characters of Dreamweaver's Dilemma to our last stop before we reach the main timeline of the series, a little novel called Falling Free. As I mentioned, this was the first piece of Lois McMaster Bujold's writing I had read, and I had intentionally avoided learning anything about it or the rest of the series prior to beginning, although I may have been aware that this story took place long before most of the events of the series. Here is some information about the publication history of Falling Free from its page on forcosigan.fandom.com. Quote, Falling Free, written by Lois McMaster Bujold and published by Bean Books in 1988, was the fourth book written in the Vorkosigan saga. It was first published by Analog as a four-part serial from December 1987 to February 1988 and has been collected in the omnibus edition Miles, Mutants, and Microbes. The Reader's Chair published an audio version in 1996, read by Michael Hansen and Carol Cohen. Chronologically, it takes place about 200 years before the events of the main sequence of the books. It is not, however, the earliest story. That is Dreamweaver's Dilemma. Falling Free won the Nebula Award for the Best Novel and was nominated for the Hugo Award for Best Novel, came in ninth place for the Locus Award for Best Science Fiction Novel, and was nominated for a Prometheus Award, all in 1989. It also won a Hall of Fame Prometheus Award in 2014. The Reader's Chair audio production won the Publisher's Weekly Listen Up Award in January 1997 and the Audiophile Earphones Award in December of 1996, end quote. I first consumed this story in audiobook format, and I am giving it an initial review in the same way. 
but I found that having a printed or ebook copy is necessary for how I'm producing this podcast. That being said, I have never heard the Reader's Chair production, and after doing a quick Google, I found a podcast dedicated entirely to science fiction in, in the audiobook format called the SFF Audio Podcast, all one word, which is active and an amazing 684 episodes. The audiobooks for the Verkosigan saga I have read, in quotes, have all been from Blackstone Audio and are all masterfully narrated by Grover Gardner. This review, written in 2003 by Scott D. Danielson on the SFF Audio website for the Reader's Chair production of Falling Free, has this to say, quote, The audio version of this book is another exception, referring to how Lois is an exceptional writer of space opera. It's performed by two narrators, Michael Hansen and Kara Cohen. They swap narrating duties with changes in the story's point of view, a technique I first heard in this audiobook and that I find very effective. The two narrators also perform some conversations together during the story, somewhat like an audio drama. This is something I have found to be extremely ineffective in other audiobooks I have read since this one. But here I enjoy their interplay and didn't experience the jarring effect that I felt in other books that have attempted this same technique. And quote, I quite agree with Danielson about his dislike for the audio drama format. I particularly hate when audiobook productions add sound effects or have music in the background. My preference in general is to have a single narrator doing all the voices, but I have, in quotes, read and enjoyed audiobooks from multiple narrators. For example, presently I am working my way through the Stormlight Archive, which has both a male and female narrator. This multi-narrator style also worked very well for Orson Scott Cards, Enders, and Bean series of audiobooks, that, although I enjoyed the Stefan Rinicki parts the most. Why am I going on a tangent about audiobook production? Because I find it interesting and this is my show. Falling Free is dedicated simply for Dad. So far, we've learned a bit about Lois's father, Robert Charles McMaster, PhD, from her biologue, and she seems to mention his influence on her as an engineer and a reader of sci-fi at almost every opportunity. His influence even extended to Lois's friend Lillian, as the sci-fi stories Lillian was exposed to were coming to her downstream from Lois's father. And it is with this information that a whole new level of the book Falling Free is revealed. So before we begin getting into meeting the characters of Falling Free, I think it is necessary to read some selections from a biologue of Dr. McMaster's professional career written in 1989 by Robert I. Jaffe for Memorial Tributes, National Academy of Engineering, Volume 3, National Academy Press. I am mostly just omitting the long list of awards here. Quote, A tribute to Robert Charles McMaster, 1913 to 1986. Robert Charles McMaster, one of the pioneers of non-destructive testing, died of cardiac shock in his home in Delaware, Ohio, on July 6, 1986. Dr. McMaster who was 73 when he died, was Regents Professor Emeritus of Welding Engineering and Electrical Engineering at Ohio State University, OSU. He was elected to the National Academy of Engineering in 1970. He retired from OSU in 1977 and spent the last nine years of his life in a typical proactive Bob McMaster style involved in countless projects, including continuing consulting, editing the second edition of his monumental non-destructive testing handbook, and attending to his family to whom he was devoted. 
McMaster received a BS in 1936 in electrical engineering from Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and an MS in 1938 in electrical engineering from California Institute of Technology, Caltech, in Pasadena, California, and a PhD magna cum laude in electrical engineering and physics in 1944, also from Caltech. At Caltech, McMaster supervised welding and X-ray radiology, his first encounter with the field of non-destructive testing, NDT. His PhD research involved the effects of light on power transmission lines. His teachers included Nobel laureates Carl D. Anderson, Robert A. Millikan, and Enrico Fermi. Bob McMaster's first job after finishing his PhD was with Battelle Memorial Institute Columbia Laboratories, where he cut quite a swath as supervisor of electrical engineering from 1945 to 1954. It was during this period that Bob McMaster became one of the nation's first televised weathermen. From 1950 to 1964, he broadcast twice a day at WBNS-TV in Columbus, providing for his watchers a virtual education weather forecasting that included the why as well as the what in the local weather picture. His Patel days included important work on the use of sonic and ultrasonic wave-assisted oil well drilling and power tools, a topic he continued at OSU. This experience culminated in the licensing of industry to produce high-power-level piezoelectric transducers for metalworking and hand tools. McMaster continued his work on NDT, applying the Xerox copy process developed by Patel for Haloid Company, which later became Xerox Corporation, to radiography in the Zero radiography units being marketed by Xerox. Zero radiography is now widely used in medicine for early cancer detection. McMaster joined Ohio State University in 1955. He began as professor of welding engineering and later became Regents Professor of Welding and Electrical Engineering. He taught courses in NDT and welding to both graduate and undergraduate students. Bob McMaster turned out to be a superb teacher. His booming lecture voice and carefully printed blackboard will never be forgotten by his students, to whom he was known as Doc. His courses in welding and NDT principles and analysis were also perhaps the best English and mathematic courses his students ever had. A report with grammatical errors would be returned with a suitable pithy comment scrawled in the margins for corrections before it would be accepted. Of McMaster's more than 300 publications and 19 patents, perhaps the most significant to his field and to society as a whole is the Non-Destructive Testing Handbook that he edited for the American Society for Non-Destructive Testing. The two-volume first edition appeared in 1959. McMaster finished the second edition in 1986, before his untimely death. His achievement in compiling and often rewriting the contributions to this work is staggering. The manuscript of the first edition totaled 2,700 typed pages containing 1,250 illustrations and stood 26 inches high when stacked. The award-winning publication was so comprehensive, so far-reaching, and definitive that it is still widely used 27 years after its publication and has been translated into many languages, including French, Spanish, Russian, and Chinese. McMaster's work on NDT was of great timeliness because it coincided with the development of fracture mechanics during the early 1950s, a period marked 
by catastrophic failures of turbine and generator rotors and rocket motor casings. The juxtaposition of the development of NDT and fracture mechanics appears to be more than coincidence. Prior to an understanding of fracture mechanics and the development of finite stress analysis, NDT was used primarily for radiographic inspection. Fracture mechanics required accurate knowledge of flaw size and location relative to the static dynamic stresses that are applied to large critical components. McMaster's work on advanced NDT techniques, including ultrasonic and eddy current methods, was vital to the new fracture mechanics technology that was created during the 1950s to analyze failures and predict the life of components. McMaster had a sophisticated view of NDT in the total context of science and engineering and of the importance of NDT to society. His later publications dealt more and more with management responsibilities and ethical philosophy in the application of NDT. He saw NDT as a broad family of technologies that extended human powers of perception beyond the inspection of industrial materials to many fields, including non-invasive medical diagnostics, geophysical sensing, meteorological environmental monitoring, and radiometric probing of space. His humane vision of the NDT profession is one of his many legacies. Bob McMaster leaves behind a living legacy of hundreds of people with whom he came in contact, students and professional colleagues, to continue his work in non-destructive testing. End quote. So, put all that information about Dr. McMaster in your pocket, but not too deep, because we'll be needing it again very soon. But before that, I'm just going to read the short thanks paragraph that follows the dedication. Quote, The author would like to thank three gentlemen for helping to improve the ratio of science to fiction in this story. Dr. Henry Belstein for information on space and physiology and medicine. James A. McMaster, welding engineer, Lois's brother and Wallace A. Vorek, Explosives Technology Consultant. Much that is technically correct, I owe to them. Any errors are my own. My debt exceeds words to the late Dr. Robert C. McMaster, physicist, engineer, teacher, and inventor, for help beyond technical, beyond measure. The errors are still my own, but I'm working on them. End quote. And with that, we'll take the leap and begin falling free. Greetings, fellow Vorkies. If you'd like to get in contact with me, you can send me an email at thevorecastpodcast at gmail.com. You can also contact me on the Vorecast Instagram page and the Vorecast Reddit page. The Vorecast is available on most podcast platforms and even on YouTube. So go check it out and please like, follow, and subscribe and rate the Vorecast on whatever podcast platform you listen to. Thanks. And always remember... Forward momentum. Let's begin by looking at the first few paragraphs of the book. Quote, The shining rim of the planet Rodeo wheeled dizzily past the observation port of the orbital transfer station. A woman, whom Leo Graf recognized as one of his fellow disembarking passengers from the jump ship, stared out eagerly for a few minutes, then turned away, blinking and swallowing, to sit rather abruptly on one of the bright cushioned lounge chairs. Her eyes closed, opened, caught Leo's. She shrugged in embarrassment. Leo smiled sympathetically. Immune himself to the assorted nauseas of space travel, he moved to take her place at the crystal viewport." End quote. So here we have an example 
of a near-perfect character introduction. As far as setting goes, from the very first sentence we get that we are in a planetary system that is a planet named Rodeo, so not Earth's solar system, that we are inside an orbiting space station, and that the purpose of the space station is to transfer something. Now as far as that perfect character introduction, Lois is able to combine world building, narrative story development, character background, and character likability all by the end of this paragraph. First of all, she introduces Leo in a kind of devious way. The second sentence starts with the words, a woman. And as I read this, even after having read the whole book multiple times, my mind's attention perks up in a way like, okay, this woman is likely an important character, pay attention. But the a woman is followed by whom Leo Graf recognized as one of his fellow disembarking passengers. And my attention has to do a kind of double take and refocus on this named character. So why bring up the woman at all? Because it is a great way to get inside the actual main character's head, developing his character as well as a very creative method for exposition. Instead of the narrator explaining that Leo has just disembarked from a jump ship and that he's experienced out of space travel and that in this world space travel and space habitats have become so commonplace that there are lounge chairs in space, all of that is explained through Leo's own observation of a woman with motion sickness. And we get one of those little human moments that Lois is so good at when the woman and Leo's eyes meet and the woman is slightly embarrassed. At this moment, Lois has the opportunity to go several different ways with Leo's character. How will he react to catching somebody in a moment of vulnerability? Lois could have described Leo as feeling superior because of his ease of travel at zero G, or even more extreme, he could feel contempt for this woman's weakness, and we would get the impression that Leo was probably not a good guy. Alternatively, he could feel pity or maybe humor, which would shape his character in a different, but not necessarily better direction. But Lois doesn't want to create any ambiguities about Leo, at least not yet, so she uses maybe the most likable response, that of sympathy. Lastly, Lois does a one-paragraph setup and payoff with the concept of the viewport causing nausea, as she uses that fact to very naturally bring up Leo's own rock-solid constitution as far as space nausea goes. So from this first paragraph we get, we're light years from Earth, our character has traveled through a wormhole using some kind of commercial space travel starline. Our character is comfortable in zero-g, indicating competence, and that he is sympathetic to other people who are not as competent, which makes him sympathetic to the reader. Let's quickly touch on the name Leo Graf. As we read through this series, we will encounter quite a few character types, names, and concepts that seem to be ripped straight out of more popular works of fiction, but usually it will be very obvious that Lois thought of these things first when the publication dates are compared. However, the name Graf does not so easily fit into that pattern. The issue I'm getting at here is that in 1986, only two years prior to the publication of Falling Free, the name Graf, spelled with two Fs versus Lois's spelling of just G-R-A-F, was used for a prominent character in Orson Scott Card's Ender's Game. In fact, Ender's Game was originally published as a short story in Analog in 1975, and we all know how loyally Lois read Analog. So is the use of Graph here an homage to that beloved character from the Ender series, or a coincidence or what? I'd love to hear back from anybody who has any insight into this, because this has bugged me from the first time I read Falling Free almost a decade ago. 
It would be like if I wrote a fantasy story and named the main character Freddy Conan or something. It would be distracting. I'm going to refer to this segment in the story from the second paragraph and going on until we are given a full picture of the pieces in play, the title of Ominous Shit. This phrase is something I came up with when watching the recent series Chernobyl on HBO. While watching that masterpiece of filmmaking, I often broke the tension by joking to myself that they should have just renamed that show Ominous Shit because from the very start, the filmmakers put so much focus on the seemingly small and insignificant moments that added up to a regional tragedy and a narrowly prevented worldwide disaster. The difference in Falling Free is that Lois doesn't have the assistance of that already known real-life tragedy to help her build the tension. So as we come across these moments in Falling Free, I will try to point them out as ominous shit, or just OS. The first example of OS comes right away in the second paragraph. Quote, Rodeo was a marginal world, home only to Galactech mining and drilling operations and their support facilities. But what was he doing here? Leah wondered anew. Underground operations were hardly his field of expertise. End quote. So what's OS about this? Well, first of all, we are introduced to a future corporate entity, not the seemingly fun guy named Portobello Pharmaceutical Company from the Dreamweaver's Dilemma story, but the seriously OS-ly named Galactech. Also, since the overarching conflict in Dreamweaver's Dilemma was due to the impersonal cruelty of corporate puppet masters, we have some idea of the place corporations occupy in Lois's internal hierarchy of ethical human institutions, as well as the sentiment of the general public at the time. As far as corporate baddies go in sci-fi, two years before the publication of Falling Free, in 1986, James Cameron's Aliens was released followed a year later by Paul Verhoeven's Robocop. In both of these excellent films, the main villain turns out to be corporate greed and ambition. And if you were too cool for sci-fi in the 80s, also in 1986, the Oliver Stone film Wall Street premiered, which seemed to achieve the paradoxical status of being both a critique of corporate greed to some and aspirational to others. With all that in mind, let's try and imagine what is implied by a corporation that would name itself Galactech. To start, let's just say that any corporation or any kind of institution that has their intention of galaxy-wide influence as part of their name is probably by default seeking to vastly overreach the amount of power that any person or even group of people could possibly manage ethically, not to mention the means by which that power would be cultivated. Serious OS especially when combined with the fact that this tech company is involved in mining on a planetary scale? Mining? An occupation so primed for exploitation and abuse that it was used as one of the harshest punishments possible in the Roman Empire, not to mention the many instances of social turmoil that conflicts between miners and mining companies have caused in 20th century U.S. history? Listen to some Woody Guthrie. Now, combine everything I said with the prospect that this company is now operating light years away from any kind of oversight. OS for sure. Now add to all that the element of secrecy and mystery that is introduced when we come to understand that Leo has been kept in the dark about why he's even there. Ominous shit. Never to miss an opportunity to squeeze as much storytelling juice from each word as possible, Lois then combines her tension building with more character development for Leo. 
The mystery of why Leo is there is a perfect way for us to learn more about him while he tries to reason the mystery out, as well as give us some more practical science about the generation of gravity on space stations. Internally, Leo begins to go through the possibilities. From the viewport mentioned earlier, Leo starts to visually examine the orbital transfer station's wheel, quote, noting the stress points and wondering when they'd last been x-rayed for secretly propagating flaws. Centrifugal g-forces at the rim where this lounge was situated seemed to be running at about half Earth standard, a little light perhaps, deliberately stress reduced, trouble anticipated in the structure, end quote. Here Lois is making some assumptions that her readers would be familiar with the generation of force through angular velocity or spinning a wheel. If you've ever tied something to the end of a string and spun it around your head, you would have been experiencing the same physical forces being generated by the space station's spinning wheel. This is visually demonstrated to great effect in Stanley Kubrick's 2001, as we see the character Dave running laps around what seems to be the inside of a circle. This spinning wheel design is often seen in depictions of future spacecraft because generating a force in the direction of our heads towards our toes is essential to maintaining the physical health of astronauts by preventing the muscle degradation that occurs during long periods of low gravity exposure. These observations let us learn a little more about Leo and also the reason we read up about Lois's father start to become clear. Leo's profession seems to be related to structural integrity and testing. This hint is confirmed by another of Leo's confused musings. Quote, but he was here for training, they'd said at Galactic Headquarters on Earth, to teach quality control procedures in free-falling welding and construction. To whom? Why here at the end of nowhere? The K Project was a singularly uninformative title for his assignment. End quote. So much OS here. Train who? Secret project? End of nowhere? And guess what? We're only on the third paragraph. Leo's profession becomes clearer too. Quality control and welding. Sound familiar? Yes, Leo has the spacefaring version of one of Lois's father's jobs. Now we get introduced to another character, and I'm sorry to linger on these opening paragraphs so long, but they are just real examples of masterful character development. I'm not a writing teacher, so I'm not trying to treat this podcast as some kind of creative writing lecture, but I just think it is fun to think about all the behind-the-scenes mechanics of why I found these characters so compelling upon first reading. Quote, Leo Graf, Leo turned, yes? The speaker was tall and dark-haired, perhaps 30, perhaps 40. He wore conservative, fashionable, civilian clothes, but a quiet lapel pin marked him as a company man. Best sedentary executive type, Leo decided. The hand he held out for Leo to shake was evenly tanned but soft. I'm Bruce Van Atta. Leo's thick hand was pale but freckled with brown spots. Crowding 40, sandy and square, Leo wore comfortable red company coveralls by long habit, partially to blend with the workers he supervised, mostly so that he need never waste time and thought deciding what to put on in the morning. Leo read the label printed over his left breast pocket, eliminating all mystery. Van Atta grinned. Welcome to Rodeo, the armpit of the universe. End quote. The narration is coming from a third person limited to Leo's point of view, so the character development coming for Van Atta is nearly all from dialogue and behavior. The only little exception is this description of his uncertain age, which just gives us a strange first impression of the man. This section is all about comparing these two men, and it is also worth noting that this is our first physical description of Leo, 
something that might have come earlier, but served a greater narrative use here. A small motif is introduced here as well, that of the character and a person being represented in their hands. 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 I had an immediate distaste for Van Atta after reading this, but I honestly can't remember if this was as acute the first time I read it. I suspect that it was, since all the elements to introduce such a feeling are present. Let's compare. Van Atta is described as wearing civilian clothing with only a small pin indicating that he was an employee. This small act comes off as a kind of sneakiness or secretiveness. While Leo's attire is specifically designed to be easy for anyone to ascertain his general type of work, as well as who he is with his name printed clearly on his chest, as Lois points out, eliminating all mystery. So, Benata, default, secretive and hidden. Leo, default, open with nothing to hide. Benata's hands are tanned but soft. Leo's hand is pale and thick. While the working man versus city man hand thing is a bit of a cliche, it is excusable on balance with all the great stuff going on here. But beyond the relative roughness of their hands, the detail about being tan and pale might actually be doing the heavy lifting, character development-wise. This is possibly something a reader wouldn't think of explicitly while reading, but the idea of having a tan in space must push some kind of subconscious button. Van Atta is vain, maybe to the point of narcissism, if he is willing to seek out or even transport a tanning bed to another solar system. And then, finally, Van Atta's statement, Welcome to Rodeo, the armpit of the universe, says so much more about the person saying it. Lois does such a brilliant job motivating each line of this dialogue with the unspoken assumptions each man is making about the other. Here Van Atta is saying, Welcome to another crappy job that we're too good for, or at least I am. So many dynamics here. Leo knows him for a company man, yet Van Atta disparages the project almost immediately, leading us to wonder, where do this man's loyalties lie? And after all this subtle character shading, we get a huge piece of OS, as Van Atta states, Quote, I'm head of K-Project now. I'll be your boss. End quote. As somebody who has received the application of some pretty terrible management techniques in my time, let me just say that bad-mouthing the company or project that you are working for to your subordinates is not the best way to build rapport with them. If I was Leo, I would be seriously starting to get worried, and as a reader, I definitely am. It turns out that Van Atta has requested Leo personally, this is even more OS, especially when Van Atta says, quote, You're like me, I know. Got no patience with deadheads. It was a hell of a job to have dumped on me, trying to make this division profitable, but if I succeed, I'll be the golden boy. End quote. So this guy is obviously crazy. Even by this point in the story, we can see that Leo and Van Atta are nothing alike. Their fundamental personality differences can be seen in their clothing. Van Atta has so many toxic traits on display here, Overconfidence in his assumptions, along with the resentment instead of gratitude to his superiors for being given this promotion. And even though he is acting friendly towards Leo, he has pretty much told him that he only needs Leo to help advance his own career and curry favor with the people he has just expressed resentment towards. After all of this, it is clear that Benatta has only his self-interest in mind at all times. Therefore, every line of dialogue he delivers or action he performs will have at least this double meaning. Still slightly off-balanced by all the uncertainties surrounding his reason for being there, Leo is pleased that his reputation has led to this personal request for his help. But help with what? Quote, They told me at HQ that I was being sent out here to give an expanded version of my short course in non-destructive testing. End quote. 
And there's the final confirmation that Leo's profession, at least, is heavily based on Lois's father. Venata realizes that Leo doesn't know any of the important details about the K project, and instead of filling him in, he says, quote, Are you in for a surprise? Well, well, I won't spoil it. Venata's sly grin was as irritating as a familiar poke in the ribs. Too familiar. Oh, hell, Leo thought. This guy knows me from somewhere, and he thinks I know him. Leo's polite smile became fixed in mild panic. He had met thousands of Galactech personnel in his 18-year career. Perhaps Van Atta would say something soon to narrow the possibilities. End quote. Once again, I have to say how impressive these character introductions are. There is just so much packed into every sentence that I'm having trouble actually summarizing and not just reading the story out loud. All that would have been necessary to successfully introduce these characters and set up the story's future conflicts would have been that Leo was a conscientious professional and that Venata was a self-serving narcissist. But Lois adds this extra element of a previous relationship. Not only that, but a relationship that one party has invested a lot of energy into maintaining for reasons we'll find out shortly, and yet the existence of that relationship was totally forgotten by the other party, even after meeting again. Not only is this an incredibly realistic and relatable social and professional dilemma, which lends that much more reality to the foundations of the story, but also implies a whole other backstory in itself. What must have happened in their past for one to remember and the other to so thoroughly forget? This exchange is also used to tell us that Leo is a longtime employee of Galactech as well. The OS keeps piling on as Van Atta fills Leo in on the death of the project's original leader, Dr. K. Van Atta brazenly proclaims that Dr. K, quote, should have been forcibly retired, in my opinion, but he was a vice president and a major stockholder and thoroughly entrenched. But that's the blood over the damn damned, eh? I replaced them. End quote. Notice what Van Atta points out as qualifications for Dr. K's long-held position as project leader. K's rank in the company and influence on the board. Van Atta doesn't mention Dr. K's technical qualifications at all. Once again, the subtext of what Van Atta is saying is more about what he thinks are important qualities for leadership than anything important about Dr. K. Also, he's talking ill of the recently dead, never an endearing quality. Venata takes Leo aboard a small shuttle and the story's mystery deepens and the OS thickens as the shuttle heads away from the planet. It becomes clear that they are heading towards another space station orbiting the planet. As they approach, Leo notes the various features of the station. Quote, the speck grew rapidly into a far-flung chaotic structure, all angles and projections, with confetti-colored lights spangling its sharp shadows. Leo's practiced eye picked out the clues to its function, the tanks, the ports, the greenhouse filters winking in the sunlight, the size of the solar panels versus the estimated volume of the structure, an orbital habitat. You got it, said Venata. It's huge. Indeed. How many personnel would you guess it could handle? Oh... 1,500? Venata's eyebrows rose in slight disappointment, perhaps at not being able to offer a correction. Almost exactly. 494 rotating galactic personnel and 1,000 permanent inhabitants. Leo's lips echoed the words, permanent, end quote. Ominous shit. And this little moment when Venata is disappointed in not getting to correct somebody, classic boozled. Venata takes on this obnoxious role of tour guide, which usually is a technique for telling exposition, the experienced character filling in the new character, and the readers, 
on what's going on in the story. But of course, Lois goes above and beyond and uses this classic storytelling trope to develop an addict into a person who thinks they are Willy Wonka of a sweatshop. Van Atta continues describing the administration and function of the K-orbital habitat while being intentionally elusive about certain details. He brings up the cost benefits of operating such a habitat which is contrary to Leo's experience when it comes to operating costs. Not too much super interesting stuff here, but it does lay down a solid motivation for the K-project's existence. Leo particularly brings up the lack of that gravity-simulating spinning ring on the habitat and the potential health problems that could cause. Quote, We've solved that problem too, said Van Atta. Whether the solution is cost-effective, well, that's what you and I are here to try to prove. End quote. The shuttle docks with the habitat, and as Leo and Van Atta disembark, we get another little moment demonstrating Leo's ease working and moving in zero-g. While this bit of description works on its own to tell us about Leo and a sense of pride in his expertise, it, of course, serves multiple other functions, giving us a reference for comparison with something later in the story, as well as referencing the fact that typically humans don't operate well in low gravity. Quote, Leo released his seat restraints and stretched and relaxed in the pleasurable familiarity of weightlessness. Not for him the unfortunate nauseas of Null G that sapped the efficiency of so many employees. Leo's body was ordinary enough downside. Here, where control and practice and wit counted more than strength, he was at last an athlete. End quote. Upon entering the habitat, Vanetta and Leo are greeted by a young-looking tech in a red Galactic t-shirt named Tony. Tony asks Vanetta if Leo is the new teacher they've been expecting. Vanetta confirms that he is and tells Leo that Tony is a welder. Vanetta asks Tony to, quote, shake hands with Mr. Graf. Van Atta was smirking. Leah had the impression that if he hadn't been in free fall, he would have been bouncing on his heels. Tony pulled himself obediently over the control panel. He wore red shorts. Leo blinked and caught his breath in shock. The boy had no legs. Emerging from his shorts was a second set of arms. Functional arms. He was even now using his lower left hand, Leo supposed he'd have to call it, to anchor himself as he reached out to Leo. His smile was perfectly unselfconscious. End quote. And so, the most significant part of the mystery is revealed, along with all the OS implications that go with it. And now that Lois has made her big reveal, she will begin working on the actual major accomplishment of the story, narratively speaking. There are many well-worn and worn-out tropes that are possibly in play at this point. One possible direction that this story could go is to have the majority of the story be about Leo coming to realize that these four-armed creations should be free to self-determine and that yes, they do have rights. Another would be to focus heavily on the allegorical nature of the setup and to make some statement about the cruelty of man and our tendency to dehumanize. Shame on you and me. Or even worse, the third option, which is to make the point of this story some kind of vague warning about the dangers of playing God or something. I'm looking at you, recent alien movies. But Lois wouldn't be caught dead making such obvious themes the centerpiece of her story. Things are never that cut and dry with her, and the subversion Lois is going to try and perpetrate in this story is to tell us about an obvious injustice, but not to preach about it. What themes will surface from this treatment? We'll have to continue reading to find out. Leo tries to maintain his composure as he talks with Tony, and we get a return to the handshake motif. 
Tony says, quote, Hello, sir. I've been looking forward to meeting you. Tony's handshake was shy but sincere, his hand dry and strong. Um, Leo's tongue stumbled. Um, what's your last name, uh, Tony? Oh, Tony's just my nickname, sir. My full designation is TY-776-424-XG. I, uh, guess I'll call you Tony then, Leo murmured, increasingly stunned. Van Atta, most unhelpfully, seemed to be thoroughly enjoying Leo's discomfiture. Everybody does, said Tony agreeably, end quote. Van Atta orders Tony to fetch Leo's luggage, and Leo notes how nimbly Tony moves through the habitat. Remember, Lois set up the significance of Leo's own competence in this activity so that his admiration makes Tony's agility that much more impressive. Leo initially thinks that Tony's extra arms are a birth defect, and I'm not sure if this is genuine or if he's playing dumb to get Venata to talk more. Venata, of course, takes this opportunity to become even more unlikable by confiding to Leo that, quote, I about puked when I first saw one, and I was prepared. You get used to the little chimps pretty quickly, though. There's more than one? Van Attic opened and closed his hands in a counting gesture. And even 1,000, the first generation of Galactech's new super workers. The name of the game, Leo, is bioengineering, and I intend to win. End quote. Do I even have to say it? OS. Tony catches back up with Leo and Venata, and they all go to the hydroponics area. On the way, we get some more description of the habitat. Quote, the habitat was indeed inexpensively constructed, mostly prefab units variously combined. Not the most aesthetically elegant design, a certain higgledy-piggledy randomness indicated an organic growth pattern since the habitat's inception, units stuck on here and there to accommodate new needs. But its very dullness incorporated safety advantages Leo approved. The interchangeability of the air seal system, for example. End quote. And a little later, we get a description of the four-armed people from Leo's POV, and we also start to understand that, yes, Leo gets it. Leo can see the OS as much as we can. Quote, He could see why Van Atta dubbed them chimps. They were thin-hipped, lacking the powerful gluteal locomotor muscles of people with legs. The lower set of arms tended to be more muscular than the uppers in both males and females, power grippers and thus appeared falsely short by comparison to the uppers, bow-legged if he squinted them to a blur. They were dressed mostly in a sort of comfortable, practical t-shirt and shorts that Tony wore, evidently color-coded, for Leo passed a cluster of them in all yellow, hovering intently around a normal human in Galactech coveralls who had a pump unit half apart, lecturing on its function and repair. Leo thought of a flock of canaries, of flying squirrels, of monkeys, of spiders, of swift, bright lizards of the sort that run straight up walls. They made him want to scream, almost to weep, and yet it wasn't the arms or the quick, too many hands. He had almost reached hydroponics before he was able to analyze his intense unease. It was their faces that bothered him so, Leo realized. They were the faces of children. End quote. After a short tour of the hydroponics unit, Leo's attention is drawn to one of the workers by the strong smell of OS. Quote, the dark-haired girl paused to adjust the bundle under her arm. Leo's mind ground to a complete halt. The bundle was a baby. End quote. This dark-haired girl is Claire, and the baby, Andy, is hers and Tony's. 
we get this weird and wonderful piece of speculative writing as Tony and Claire reenact the classic scene of having a toddler walk from one parent to the other. But in this context, it's, quote, fly to daddy, Andy, fly to daddy, end quote. Leo watches in dumbstruck wonder as the baby displays an intuitive grasp of movement in three dimensions. Tony introduces Leo to Claire and Andy, and we find out that, quote, Claire was picked to be the very first natural mother of us, Tony went on in pride, end quote. Do you guys see how almost every word of the sentence is designed to be OS? Claire was picked to be a mother? That this workforce is being bred? That Tony feels pride and not horror that his child is born into servitude? Claire brings up another member of the Habitat's administration staff, according to the pronunciation guide, pronounced Dr. Ye, spelled Y-E-I. Claire says, quote, Dr. Ye said I was a very important experiment to see which sorts of productivity were at least compromised by my taking care of Andy at the same time, end quote. Claire introduces her co-worker Silver, who has very light blonde hair. But instead of saying hi to Leo, she says, quote, Good afternoon, Mr. Van Atta, Silver added particularly. She pirouetted in air with eyes that cried silently, Notice me. Leo noticed that all 20 of her manicured fingernails were lacquered pink. Van Atta's answering smile was secretive. End quote. See, Lois isn't trying to hide anything really. The point of the story isn't to peel back the layers of superficial human morality to reveal our intrinsic hypocrisy. No, that would be boring and also no fun to read. Lois puts it all out there in the first few pages. This situation is effed. These are people on the brink of tragedy and the tension in the story isn't from the revelation of the dominoes, but from what can possibly be done while we watch the first one fall over. Next, Leo and Vanatta have a conversation in Vanatta's office, and the answer to the mystery around their previous association becomes clear. Quote, I've come up in the world a bit since we last met, said Vanatta, matching his gaze. The upper atmosphere along Rodeo's rim produced some gorgeous prismatic light effects at this angle of view. In several senses, I don't mind returning the favor. The man at the top owes it to remember how he got there, I think. No blasso bleeds and all that. The tilt of Van Atta's eyebrows invited Leo to join him in self-congratulatory satisfaction. End quote. No oblige, the inferred responsibility of privileged people to act with generosity and nobility towards the less privileged. Imagine somebody actually said that to you. Still not remembering how he knows Van Atta, Leo examines some of the items in Van Atta's office to try to buy time for his memory to work. Leo notices a plaque on Van Atta's wall that must be referenced to something Lois's father owned. Quote, On the sixth day, God saw he couldn't do it all, it read. So he created engineers. Leo snorted, mildly amused. And later, Were you and Leo began and swallowed the words, Engineer then? As he finally remembered and then wondered how he could ever have forgotten Leo had known Van Atta as an engineering subordinate at that time, though, not as an executive superior. Was this sleek go-getter the same idiot he had kicked impatiently upstairs to administration just to get him out from underfoot on the Morita Station project 10, 12 years ago now? Brucey, baby. Oh, yes. Oh, hell. Van Atta's comm console disgorged a couple of data disks, which he plucked off. You put me on the fast track. I've always thought it must give you a sense of satisfaction since you spend so much of your time training to see one of your old students make good, end quote. 
I love how Lois doesn't explain the Brucey baby comment. She's established Bruce Van Atta's character so well already, it just makes sense that Leo's recollection of him would be connected to a cringy memory of Van Atta referring to himself in the third person as Brucey baby. I just can't say enough about how impressed I am with this relationship setup. It's Shakespearean in a way, with all these false assumptions and misunderstood intentions. Vanatta tells Leo that the official nickname for the four-armed people is Quaddies. And of course, Lois doesn't let anything happen arbitrarily, even nicknames, as we get this piece of Verkosigan lore. Referencing the name Quaddy, Leo asks, quote, Is not, um, pejorative? Vanatta stared and snorted. No. What you do not call them out loud, however, is mutants, genetic paranoia being what it is after the Nuovo Brazilian military cloning fiasco. This whole project could have been carried out much more conveniently in Earth orbit, but for all these assorted legal hysterias about human gene manipulation. End quote. There is an entry in the Vorkosigan Saga Concordance for the Nuovo Brazilian military cloning fiasco, but it just restates what Van Addis just said. What is interesting to note is that a majority of Dreamweaver's dilemma was set in Rio, though whether Nuevo Brazil was the name of Rio's governing body within the South American hegemony at that time is not known. Vanada goes on to explain about the two different pilot construction projects that they are going to be testing the efficiency of quality workers versus human. This piece of exposition reinforces the practical purpose in creating the quadis, but also gives us some important insight into Leo's motivations. Quote, Leo's brief angst was swallowed in interest. It had always been the work itself, not the pay and perks, that held him in thrall. Screw executive privilege. Didn't it mostly mean being stuck downside? End quote. What's really important in this quote is that Lois is already setting up the idea that Leo prefers space to being stuck downside. Vanada accompanies Leo to his quarters where we get a big info and lore dump. Vanada explains it was the development of the uterine replicators that made the K project possible because it got around the necessity of involving surrogates, which would invite more oversight. This is the first mention of the uterine replicator in the chronology of the series, although the concept of Beta Colony being interested in fertility technology was hinted at in Dreamweaver's Dilemma when Chalmers' daughter is described as being conceived after his departure for a decades-long trip to Earth. Vanada also points out that the uterine replicator technology is extremely expensive, which is an interesting detail, tiny spoiler here, since they will be used so casually in the future events of the series. Van Atta also makes the statement that starts to indicate some of the social pressures building that will lead to conflicts later in the series. After Leo asks if the uterine replicators were developed on Beta Colony, quote, Van Atta nodded, the outer worlds are getting too damn clever these days. Earth's going to lose its edge if it doesn't shape up. End quote. Vanetta explains that Dr. K was pretty much a mad scientist that had somehow managed to convince Galactech to fund his project even with a 20-year lead time. I'm going to read a rather long quote here because it would probably take just as long to summarize it, and this section really spells out almost all of the remaining pieces of OS. Vanetta is saying, quote, The extra arms are the wildest part. I've often wished I had four arms in free fall, Leo murmured, trying not to sound too dubious out loud. But most of the changes were this bunch of metabolic stuff. They never get motion sick, something about rewiring their vestibular system, and their muscles maintain tone with an exercise regime of barely 15 minutes a day, max. Nothing like the hours you and I would have to put in during a long stint in OG. Their bones don't deteriorate at all. They're even more radiation resistant than us. 
bone marrow and gonads can take four and five times the REM we can absorb before Galactic grounds us. Although the medical types are pushing for them to do their reproducing early in life while all those expensive genes are still pristine. After that, it's all gravy for us. Workers who never require downside leave. So healthy they'll go on and on, cutting high cost turnover. They're even, Vanatta snickered, self-replicating. Leo secured the last of his scanty personal possessions. Where will they go when they uh, retire, he asked slowly. Vanatta shrugged. I suppose the company will have to work something out when the time comes. Not my problem, fortunately. I'll be retired before then. What happens if they quit, go elsewhere? Suppose somebody offers them higher pay. Galactech would be out of pocket for all that R&D. I don't think you quite grasp the beauty of this setup. They don't quit. They aren't employees. They're capital equipment. They aren't paid in money, though I wish my salary was equal to what Galactech is spending yearly to maintain them. But that will get better as the last replicator cohort gets older and more self-sufficient. They stopped producing new ones about five years ago, see? in anticipation of turning the job over to the Quadis themselves. Van Adda licked his lips and raised his eyebrows as if in enjoyment of a salacious joke. And quote, I really think Leo could figure out all of the bad parts of the setup that Van Adda is explaining, but I think he just needed to hear if Van Adda would say it out loud and with what kind of emphasis. Van Adda's attitude as a de facto slave master is probably close to most people in his position throughout history. Quote, Galactech couldn't be treating them better if they were made of solid platinum. You and I should have such a good deal, Leo. Ah, uh, said Leo, and no more. End quote. And with that, we reach the end of the first chapter of Falling Free. We've been introduced to most of our main characters. Leo Graff, the welding and non-destructive testing engineer, full of professional pride and integrity. Bruce Van Atta, the former subordinate of Leo Graff, who has now become Leo's boss. And whose assumption of goodwill and similar sentiment between Graf and himself has the enormous potential to turn into feelings of betrayal and spite. The briefly mentioned Dr. Ye, who refers to the Quadis as experiments, and the Quadis themselves, Tony and his partner Claire and their baby Andy, and of course Silver with the painted nails. We get the setup that these Quadis are the result of an obsessed and deceased creator, Dr. K, and whose fate is now at the best, in the impersonal hands of Dr. Ye, or, possibly worst, the money and power-hungry hands of Bruce Van Atta. So please join me again in the next episode of The Vorecast, as we get a glimpse into the day-to-day -day life of the members of the K Project. And I will see you all on the far side of the wormhole nexus.